This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Laura Nenzi, professor of history in the Department of History at the University of Tennessee. Dr. Nenzi is the author most recently of The Chaos and Cosmos of Kurosawa Tokiko, One Woman's Transit from Tokugawa to Meiji Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2015. Dr. Ninzi, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. You published this book recently, The Chaos and Cosmos of Kurosawa Tokiko. And I was wondering if you could walk us through Kurosawa's life a little bit and then really emphasize what her position is in leading up to the Meiji Restoration. Yes. So Kurosawa Tokiko was a base-born woman who lived in Mito Domain, she was born in 1806 and she died in 1890. So she lived across the Tokugawa-Meiji divide. And this in and of itself would not necessarily qualify her for a study. But what makes her, at least in my opinion, interesting is the fact that, among other things, and this is not the only thing that makes her exceptional, she became interested in politics in the 1850s and she became vocal activist in the process that eventually led to the fall of the Tokugawa. At the same time, none of the actions that she took changed the course of history in any way. So she's this uh, strange case study of somebody whose um, actions, I believe, are quite exceptional and telling and worthy of consideration, but in the end, the results are not there. Aside from being a political activist, and this is not the only reason why I'm interested in her, she was also a rural school teacher. She, her family ran a terakoya, one of those village schools that catered to children of the local community and nearby villages. Uh, she was the first woman in the family, in fact, to run the terakoya. Uh, and she was also a prognosticator, a fortune teller. She consulted the hexagrams of the Book of Changes. She asked questions of the heavens and she came up with answers. And all these experiences combined influenced also the way in which she became a polit political activist. She became very upset in the late 1850s, in 1858, when uh, treaties were signed with foreign powers. And at the same time, when uh, former Mito Domain Lord Tokugawa Nariaki complained about the signing of these treaties and was, was sentenced to house arrest. Tokiko, like many other people in Mito Domain, was offended. She decided to take action, to do something about it. And this is where her story becomes, to me, fascinating. She decided that she was going to appeal to none other than the emperor himself for the release of Tokugawa Nariaki from house arrest. And um, she also wanted to denounce the policies of Prime Minister Inaosuke, who, in her opinion, had sold out the country to the foreign invaders. And so she left her small village in Mito Domain, and she traveled by foot all the way to Kyoto. It took her about a month. She connected with people who had connections with the imperial court. She delivered a petition, which she wrote in the form of a choka, of a long poem, 
we don't really know whether the petition reached the hands of the emperor, but the authorities knew about this act of insubordination and what they thought was uh, an act that threatened the realm, that threatened the Tokugawa establishment, and so they sent out orders for her arrest. She was arrested a few days later in Osaka. She was imprisoned first in Osaka, then she was sent to Kyoto, interrogated several times, and then she was put in a cage and sent to Edo. She spent some time in Tematsuo prison. Then she was sentenced to banishment. She was released. That This is at the end of 1859. She was released, um, but she was not, in theory, allowed to go back home, which she did anyway after a short time. And then she resumed her life, and uh, she lived through the Mito Civil War in 1864. She lived through the Tokugawa Meiji transition when that happened in 1868. And then in the Meiji period, she had to negotiate with the changes that the, the new times brought because as a teacher and as somebody associated with prognostication and particularly in her case, the Shugendo tradition, these were two pillars of her identity that were profoundly changed by the policies of, of the Meiji state. Um, there were changes in education and uh, Shugendo was abolished. And so she had to navigate these changes and, and attempt to preserve her identity in the face of change with, with creative solutions. So to answer the second part of your question, what is the place of Tokiko in the, in the Meiji Restoration? The short answer is that, again, she didn't really affect the outcome of, of anything. Um, yes, she went to Kyoto, but she never met, obviously, with the emperor. We don't even know whether the petition reached the hands of the emperor. Even if, if it did, what she asked for, which was the release of Tokugawa Nariaki from house arrest, didn't happen. So that, that could be an answer. She doesn't really have at all. Um, but, but that's not my answer because that wouldn't justify writing a book about her. And I argue <laughs> that, uh, to me at least, it's not so much the results that counts, um, which is arguably inconspicuous, but it's the whole process. The fact that she could even conceive of such a plan, of such an action, that she was able to pull it off to a certain extent. That tells us something about, on the one hand, possibilities that had opened up for women, but also for commoners in general, at the end of the Tokugawa. At the same time, the fact that she was a woman played a role in the accusations that were leveled against her. So even though it's been argued that the fluid time of the Bakumatsu of the late Tokugawa created new opportunities for women, and I do agree with that, it's also true that they had to fight for that and that uh, um, she was accused of doing things that went very much against the expectations of uh, gender. If I may add another thing, I think that the combination of kind of rational action, but also her constant questions that she asks to the heavens also tell us kind of a, a new story or give us a new way of looking at uh, political activism in the late Tokugawa. We've had stories about the rational Shishi, the man of determination, the samurai who had a plan and enacted. And then we have read stories about the frenzied masses that go on pilgrimages and break into the homes of rich merchants. And they don't have a face. They don't have a name. They're just very emotional. And she, I think she sits in between these stories of rational actors and these stories of 
irrational, for the lack of a better word, or emotional actors. And she talks about this desire to heal the cosmos. Is this seen as kind of a yonaoshi, the kind of world-redeeming aspect? To a certain extent, yes. Her cosmos is more limited, so her desire to heal is focused on, I guess, a, a lower level, an intermediate level. The low level is her own body. When she writes this, she's physically sick uh, and in prison. And the other, the, the, the intermediate level is the, the country. So she wants to heal. If she says something along the lines of, if I cannot heal the bug that I have in my body, then we cannot heal the country. Uh, so it's not kind of a cosmic uh, approach. The, the, I guess what the, the superior level, um, it's not, not that, but she's very much focused on the fate of what she calls the tenka koka, <laughs> the, the country at large. And one of the things that makes her so remarkable and so exceptional is, as you write about, she's one of the only women that we know of during the Tokugawa period who's actually convicted of a crime. Is that right? Yes. Um, she's convicted of well, slandering a Tokugawa official. She's quite outspoken in the petition that she wrote for the emperor. She names names, and that's surprising. Usually accusations were made, but they tended to be indirect. And she mentions Iinaosuke as the culprit. Um, she says he committed evil acts, akuji, that he's corrupt, that he squandered resources. So she's accused of that, of slandering a high-level official. Then she's also accused, and this is something that they cannot prove and she denies, of having written a, a petition that potentially included encrypted messages. Uh, and this brings us back to the issue of gender. Like Nobody can believe that as a woman, she could have conceived of this mission just on her own and pulled it off on her own. And it is true that she has a network of friends and colleagues and poets that she relies on, but, but they think she's been sent by Tokugawa Nariaki or by the wife of Tokugawa Nariaki. They, just, the issue of gender comes up many times over in the accusations that are leveled against her. Something that obviously is, is never part of the accusations leveled against the shishi, the male shishi, right? Uh, they are accused of threatening the Tokugawa. That's it. And in her case, so she's in trouble twice uh, for what she does and for who she is, for her gender. So in many ways, as you say, she's extraordinary, exceptional, but how singular? I mean, I, I guess the question, as you were saying before, she also kind of represents the new possibilities for commoners at the end of the Tokugawa period. So we've talked about how extraordinary is she. In what ways is she ordinary? I like to think that she's extraordinary, but at the same time, let's not forget that nothing of what she does really affects the outcome of of the restoration. Yes, her side wins, but certainly not <laughs> because of her. Um, and testament to that is the fact that she was relatively unknown. Even when I started um, researching her, which um, would be late 2006, early 2007, I spoke to several people who had never heard of her. And there was not a whole lot of literature on her either. So she's certainly fallen through the cracks uh, of history. I'm glad I could um, rescue her. Uh, the, the people who have kept her memory alive are the locals in what is now the town of Shirosato, the former village of Suzukoya. Those local activists have always been very 
active in trying to preserve our memory. They were, up until a few years ago, even preserving our native home in which the Kurosawa family lived until the 1960s. It was still standing when I visited in, the first time I visited in 2007. It was treated as a small museum of sorts and you could go in and see the, the room where she used to teach the children of the village. And then things changed and the land had to be sold and the house fell into disrepair. Then there was the earthquake in 2011. So it's, it's not looking so good now, but I'm digressing. But yes, I, I think she's exceptional. And at the same time, she didn't achieve anything. So that's quite the combination. <laughs> As you mentioned, it, it's important to rescue her from being forgotten. And, and having this kind of micro history approach, I think, is is an excellent way to do that. Because through this story of Kurosawa Tokiko, we get a very different view of the Meiji Restoration. Can you talk about the micro history methodology or, or how that view of the Meiji Restoration changes from the perspective of this one individual? Yes. So there is no precise definition of what microhistory is. As I was writing the book, I read as much as I could on microhistory and nobody seems to agree exactly on what <laughs> constitutes microhistory. What does the micro in microhistory mean? Does it refer to a really, really short period of time? Are we going to write the history of 10 minutes in the life of a person? Or is it the story of a, a really small village, or is it the story of uh, insignificant individuals? So there's no agreement on what microhistory is, but I, I think definitely this is a microhistorical study. It's based on documentation that is circumscribed, and it's produced by somebody who, again, has not been in the spotlight. And I think by focusing on her, I have, I have noticed that new narratives were emerging. Like I mentioned earlier, she sits at the intersection of uh, the focus of the famous Shishi and the alleged folly of the masses. The risk when taking a microhistorical approach that looks at somebody like Tokiko is to turn her into a model for how commoners behave or a model for how women experienced the Tokugawa Meiji transition, I was very careful not to do that. And I have colleagues who disagreed with that. They, they thought that, well, then why do we need to hear the story of somebody who did not achieve anything and is not representative of a larger group? I disagree with them. I thought that every time I read something by her, some new avenues of investigation opened up. So there's, there's something to be gained by looking at the big textbook moments of history as they were experienced by somebody who very often was on the sidelines, very often was affected by contingencies of the everyday that had nothing to do with what was unfolding, say, in Edo at that very moment. I had a lot of fun reading her diaries, looking at the dates and what she was doing on the same exact day when, say, the treaties were signed or when some important event happened and she's pickling eggplants or she's uh, airing out her books. But then she's not oblivious, obviously, and, and she knows what's going on. And so eventually she reacts. So 
her life is affected by these big textbook moments of history, but also affected by things like personal joys, family-related events, etc. And it was a nice way of, I think, adding some nuance to a story that we've read many times, whose, whose narrative we know, but this, this was a, a different way of looking at an old story. So we could pivot to teaching. I'm curious to hear how you bring Tokiko into your classes when you teach about the end of the Edo period and, and into the Meiji period. So I teach another class, which is modern Japan. It starts with Tokugawa. We don't cover a whole lot of Tokugawa, and then we cross the divide. And I, I do talk about Tokiko in the class. The emphasis in the modern Japan class is on conflict and resistance to the policies of the modern government of Meiji. And it's not that she resists openly, uh, obviously, but I was mentioning earlier some tactics that she uses to preserve her identity in the face of change. So the fact that, for example, a national school system is created and now you have to have a certification to be a teacher. Uh, how does that affect her? She's been running the Terakoya for at this point for almost 20 years. And so she has to devise ways to keep her identity as the local village teacher. And for a while, she becomes an elementary school teacher until the requirement for certification becomes effective and the grace period expires. And also at that point, she's in her 70s, late 60s, early 70s. So she cannot be part of the modern school system anymore, but she still teaches private classes in her house, in the Terakoya room of her house. So that's one example of how she negotiates between the new and the old, and she preserves her identity, adapting. Uh, so that's an example that I offer. And the other example is the way in which she tries to preserve her identity as a fortune teller, as a, as a spiritualist, as somebody who had also that identity defining her, her position in the village. And Shugendo is abolished, so she cannot latch on to that anymore. But in the 1880s, she applies to become the local representative of Ontakekyo, which is a religion that has a lot in common uh, with Shugendo in terms of notion of sacred mountains and ability of specially trained individuals to cross the boundaries between this world and the other world, etc. And so that's that's one way in which she she remains the same, but at the same time in creative ways that adapt to change. So that's she makes cameos here and there in my <laughs> in my class. She's not the main focus of, of attention, I, I, I'd say. <laughs> there are bigger stories to tell, but she's there. The metaphor used in the book of the little bird right. jumping around, <laughs> yeah. flying around. And I guess she's kind of flying through your your syllabus as well. Yes, she appears. So when I talk about um, the education of commoners in the, in the Tokugawa, she appears as, you know, there are rural school teachers, da, 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 and then I don't tell them anything else. And then, you know, she, she returns when I talk about major changes in, in education. Remember her? Well, that's how she adapts. She's an example of how these new policies have to come to terms with the reality on the ground that well, there are no other teachers. You have to hire the, the old one. You mentioned you emphasize resistance a lot. I'd love to hear more about that. And, and what are some of the flashpoints in particular that you kind of land on throughout your narrative? I think if 
any of my former students are listening to this podcast, I know that their eyes are rolling because every time I introduce a new policy of the Meiji government, I also introduce, well, and these are, are, this is a list of people who resist for this and that reason, because it doesn't please everyone. So you know, I talk about conscription. And of course, there's plenty of literature on resistance to that and people trying to get out of university conscription for all sorts of reasons. School system. I pillaged the wonderful book by Brian Platt on burning and building for that lecture. So there's resistance to that. Um, religion, especially in early Meiji with the attempts to separate Kami and Buddha, there's plenty of resistance to that. Anything that you, you can think of, somebody's going to be upset and is going to try to resist openly uh, or sometimes just with kind of passive-aggressive non-compliance, false compliance. So, so I, I emphasize that a lot. The whole class is structured on this idea that nothing ever goes smoothly. There's always going to be someone contesting that. And that continues into more recent times every time an issue arises like guess what there are also people opposing this (laughs) (laughs) i'm a contrarian i guess (laughs) (laughs) by nature I understand you're also teaching a history of Tokyo class, mm-hmm. and, and this is something that's very near and dear to my own research interests. Uh, so I'm curious, in your Tokyo class, how are you teaching the history of Tokyo? What are some of the narratives that you're using? So that I came up with this idea of teaching the history of Tokyo class many years ago. I was finishing my PhD, and I was applying for jobs. And one of the departments of the schools that I applied for had a very strong program in urban history. And so I thought that to be an appealing candidate, I should let them know that I can totally teach the history of Tokyo, which, of course, I couldn't at the time, but um, I, I went to the library and I picked up every book I could find and I started creating a syllabus. And then many years later, I'm actually teaching that class in a different school and different department. And uh, it's my favorite class to teach. If I could teach it every semester, I would. So after this premise, to answer your question... I am an Edo historian, first and foremost, so my History of Tokyo class starts with Edo, and uh, we have a 16-week-long semester, and I would say Edo occupies eight or nine weeks of that, so it's evenly split between Edo and Tokyo, and the focus is on spaces and the ways in which certain spaces or buildings tell the story of the evolution of a place from a samurai city to a city of commoners, of chonin, and then, of course, how the city changes with the Meiji period, how new construction materials um, appear, new architectural styles, new modes of transportation. There's a lot of emphasis on also kind of social aspects of this, how people react to these changes. I would say that in this particular class, I focus more on space and architecture, though. And so probably the 
narrative that the students get out of this, insofar as the Tokugawa Meiji transition is concerned, is one of change. <laughs> yes, I can tell them that the tenement homes in the low city remain the same, but then I need to focus on places like Tokyo Station or changes in Ueno Park, etc. So there's not a whole lot about resistance to changes, which is something I emphasize more in my modern Japan undergraduate class. So I'm very careful to remind them that the changes of the Meiji period involve monumental architecture, that for a lot of people, the, the reality, the architectural reality that surrounds them remains very much the same for a, uh, for a long time. And then we, we take it all the way to the present day. Last time I taught it, we were already looking ahead at the 2020 Olympics and how those are changing the geography of Tokyo yet again. I was thinking, as you said, you know, about half of the class is on Edo, which really makes sense because if we look at all of Tokyo's history since Otadokan built mm-hmm. the first Edo castle, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it really is half of Tokyo's history is taken up by the Edo period. Right. And, and I, I forced myself to stop at a certain point because I could certainly go on forever and ever. I'm, a, I'm an Edo historian by training, so I could spend the entire semester just on Edo. I will refrain from doing that. <laughs> and even, even so, I have to say that I don't get to cover everything that I would like to cover about Tokyo. So my last lecture every semester includes a long list of, and these are all the things I did not get to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> like 16 other points. We need another eight weeks. <laughs> so. Considering that you are a historian of Edo, as you said, I, I'm a little surprised to hear you emphasize the, the sharp transitions and the sharp ruptures in the space of Tokyo <laughs> coming with the Meiji Restoration. I, I thought maybe you would have taken the more Edogaku approach, uh-huh. where you know, looking at all of the antecedents of Tokyo urban modernity in Edo, or, or looking at some of the holdovers, the, the the legacies of Edo for Tokyo, looking at the plot layouts, looking at the street design. You know, Tokyo doesn't really ever cha- doesn't change that much, and and even today, if you walk around Tokyo, you can still see the palimpsest of Edo. Right. I do have a unit in the second half of the semester about memory and, and so I take them back to Edo a little bit. So these are places in Tokyo where you can go now where the narrative of the Edo past is kept alive for commercial reasons, not necessarily in a way that is 100% historically correct, etc, etc. So don't let go of Edo that easily. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I have a lot of fun with the space of Ueno, dif- depending on where, when you look at it as completely different meanings. So that's one of the fun things, right, about uh, spaces of Tokyo that, that you can dig and uh, uncover, and that's why this class will my class will never end because there's always another story that I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your favorite part of Tokyo? My favorite uh, location-wise, yeah, I'm very partial to Ueno. Yeah, you will find me sitting <laughs> around Ueno Park and uh, Shinobazu just staring <laughs> at the water. <laughs> uh, I enjoy that a lot. I was going to say, I, don't, I, I never, like, Wayno, I don't actually make it up to Wayno too often. Well, I, I try to, at least, every time I go, at least one quick trip to Wayno. I don't know why. It's a glorious mess, I guess, if I had to describe it in two words. I like it. It's a glorious mess. Um, more recently, I spent 10 months in, in Tokyo last year, and I was living in Tsukishima. Um, this was not my choice. The university that invited me there uh, 
found me a place and I, I resisted. <laughs> I didn't want to go. And then, <laughs> and then actually once I, I moved there, I realized how much I liked it. I didn't think, I thought, oh my God, I'm literally across the Sumida River. That's, that's bizarre. Banished yourself to the outskirts. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you just cross the bridge and you're there. I'm not right. far removed within walking distance of, of Ginza. But still, um, so it was a new a new part of Tokyo that I had mm-hmm. not experienced. Uh, and, and one that's very important in the Edo period. <laughs> <because it's more laughs> right, so again, new stories that unfolded. <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.